Amelia Ana Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Thanks to open source, many companies are able to leverage the technologies from each other. This is at the center of cloud computing. Alina Prohercik, principal software engineer at Rancher Labs, talked about the open source projects that she has worked on. We begin the discussion with Apache Cloud Stack and then talked about Rancher, a container platform. Alina Prohercik, principal software engineer with Rancher Labs, is joining us today. Alina, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We're going to be talking about a couple of things like cloud computing, cloud stack, rancher. But first, I want to start off with a quote that I read from a blog post that you wrote. And it says, many of you have probably heard stories about people growing up in the heart of Silicon Valley, people who started programming at age seven, who were geek and hacker superstars to their core, I must admit, all of that used to intimidate me, as the narrative of my life is quite different. Can you start off by talking about the ways in which your life was different, for example, in your upbringing and how you started programming? Yeah, I think it was different in a way. I didn't have a computer from the very young age. My family wasn't wealthy enough to afford it. So I first got introduced to the computers at in high school, and uh, there was a personal computer at the high school lab. That's where I learned programming in my senior years. And also, I was passionate about math, so I thought the programming career might work for me. So that's what my uh, was my incentive for joining the university. And I think it's kind of different from the most stories you hear about the people in Silicon Valley, how they're programming from the very young age. It was not me. But I did love programming. I did enjoy it once I learned more about it. Do you remember in high school the kind of programming they were teaching you at school? Yeah, I think it was basic in Pascal. Okay, that's cool. But yeah, it's interesting that you said, well, you already like math. And then once you found out about computers, you're like, ah, oh, there's a relation between these two. So you just decide to go ahead with computer science, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And another thing that I saw in this blog post is that you mentioned you've switched jobs numerous times. So I'm just curious of your decision-making process for switching jobs. Let me think about it. If there isn't one and you always go with your gut, that's also valid. Okay, the first one was kind of enforced on me. So I started working uh, back in my home country, Belarus, right after college. And then I won a green card in the lottery. So I came to United States and that forced me to start looking for a new job because I had to move. So uh, my first job was at uh, Citrix. Um, that's a company that do a lot of networking products. So I started working with a Netscaler in the Netscaler team where I was working on the application load balancer and firewall. That was my first job in the infrastructure space. And uh, after a couple of years at Citrix, I felt like I wanted to learn something new. I wanted to try something new. I've been hearing about all this about startups. So I decided, all right, I, I want to search for a job and I would like it to be a startup. That's how I found my second job at 
cloud.com, company called cloud.com, uh, where I, we were working on the project called CloudStack. It was a management system for virtual machines. And some elements of it were pretty similar to my previous job. There was also a load balancer. There was also a lot of networking. So it was kind of like natural. This transition was natural. And I can say that every my next job for, was kind of similar, although different in some ways, but some elements of it were similar. And for the past 10 years, I've been working in the infrastructure space, and I feel pretty comfortable. And what I like about it is that there are constantly new things coming into this domain. So in addition to comfort of knowing things that you worked with before, you constantly learn new things. And this combination is perfect. Mm-hmm. Or things get simplified. You can be working on infrastructure and then this new tool comes out and you're like, cool, my work is simplified. And then you keep making it better and focusing on other things within the same domain, right? Yeah. And like you said, you joined cloud.com, which is what became Apache Cloud Stack. Is that correct? Yeah, this is correct. It got, yeah, it got donated to Apache Cloud Stack. Mm-hmm. And you said it's a management system for VMs, can you elaborate a little bit more on what CloudStack is? Yeah, so basically it's, uh, you have a bunch of virtual machines and you have to deploy them somewhere and you have to configure a network, a network between them, a load balancer. So basically the CloudStack helped to launch this virtual machine in different clouds, set up a networking between them, customize it, set up a load balancer to jump ahead. It's a little bit like Kubernetes, but for virtual machines. And one of the things that I saw when I was reading about CloudStack is they mention the public and the private cloud. Can you mention the difference between these two with some examples? So yeah, basically the private cloud is something that you build on premise if you're a big organization. And for example, you don't want to launch your services in the public cloud like Amazon. You choose to build this private cloud in your lab. So it means that the networking, you're going to decide of what networking you want to you want to set up. Like, again, uh, with comparing with Amazon, like Amazon gives you some options to configure networking, like, for example, the VPC and stuff like that, security groups. And on your side, you can choose of what kind of uh, topology, networking topology you want. So based on my experience, the big organizations uh, usually set up their private clouds in their labs. Does this mean if they want to set up a private cloud that they have to have their own in-house software to achieve this? So that's what CloudStack is for. It's uh, infrastructure as a service. So basically you take the CloudStack and then you use it to set up your private cloud. So you use CloudStack software to to achieve this goal. You don't have to build it from scratch. Mm -hmm. Yes. And another component of Apache CloudStack is about developing open source software, like you said, for deploying infrastructure as a service. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Apache CloudStack uh, was my first project that got me introduced into open source community. And I'm very grateful for that. Even before donating to the uh, to Apache, the CloudStack, it was uh, public. So it was in the GitHub. Everybody could access it. But there was no community per se. So everybody in the company were contributing, but we didn't have any external contributors. Once the project got donated to the Apache, we joined like the big, big community. And it was very, it was so much fun to get all new people joining the project, contributing to the project, and them asking the questions made me think about problems I haven't thought before. 
because once you start formulating question uh, answer to their question you're like aha uh-huh, so i haven't thought about it or oh, what if we do this what if we do that so yeah, and managing open source community is also very interesting because people come having different backgrounds and you want the community to, you know, to be healthy and like no drama, uh, no quarrels. So you have to connect these people somehow. And that is a very interesting thing. And what are some of the ways that can help you set the tone for what the community is? So first of all, you have to be always have to be kind and remember that people are people that are contributing. They might have a different background from yours. They might have a different mindset from yours. So always be polite, be kind, be helpful, and come up with some sort of uh, introductory documentation or uh, GitHub page. So just to make this first commit smooth, encourage people to commit to your repo by providing the, this you know smooth way uh, for the very first commit because once you do things for the very first time the second one is usually much easier yeah and do you have set up a document that says rules of how people in this community should behave or something like this more like recommendations but i don't remember if you had any rules of uh, how you should behave maybe there are some uh, generic apache apache rules I cannot quite recall, but everybody, the community was pretty healthy. I, I cannot recall any problems or any wrongdoings. Yeah. And like you said, the big value that you and the project got out of this is the moment you're open source and you join Apache, this huge community joins. And like you said, they're from different backgrounds. So the kind of questions they ask add a lot of value, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. I want to talk now about Rancher, since that's where you're currently working on. And Rancher, from what I read, it's a container platform. What is the main purpose of a container platform? So I would like to share a little bit of history of Rancher. So we have started as an orchestration platform for containers, very similar to Docker Swarm and Kubernetes. Then at some point, we've decided, all right, there are so many orchestrators out there. There is Mesos, there is Kubernetes, Docker Swarm. Let's bring them on to Rancher and let's offer our users a choice of what orchestrator he wants to choose, either our built-in or Mesos or Kubernetes. And we are simplifying the installation of this third-party orchestrators. Like we are simplifying installations for Kubernetes. Then um, last year, like I think, or a couple of years ago, we've noticed that Kubernetes is really picking up. So we decided that our focus is going to be solely on Kubernetes. And Rancher 2.0 is very different from Rancher 1.x. So now we position ourselves as a Kubernetes clusters management system. So basically, we let users to set up Kubernetes clusters. We simplify things, like we manage the installations, configuration, and management for multiple Kubernetes clusters, and then you can set up all the authentication and authorization rules using the RBAC capabilities. And on top of that, we simplify the workloads deployment for the user, and we provide a nice way to set up a CI/CD pipeline. So you're saying, I'm not sure if I understood correctly, but is Rancher 1.0 started out as simplifying third-party orchestrators integration is that correct it first started as just a orchest- containers orchestrators like very similar to kubernetes so user comes and we help him to deploy containers on different clouds mm-hmm. and what is the main purpose of a container orchestrator 
So basically, to your application, user application, uh, usually consists of more than one more than one Docker containers, usually multiple ones. And if there are multiple containers, you have to set up some service discovery between them so the web server can talk to the database. And so there should be a DNS for the service discovery. There should be some sort of the overlay network because application can be deployed on multiple machines. And then you might want to load balance the traffic between different components of your application. So all these components, DNS, networking, load balancer, we are simplifying the configuration for them. Like we are providing the configuration for all these components and we let the user to deploy their applications on multi-host setup. That was our initial goal. And that was what our own orchestrator was doing in the beginning, doing all that. Similar to what Kubernetes, Swarm and Mesos are doing. And then that was step one. As a step two, we brought Mesos Kubernetes as alternative solutions to rent, and we are simplifying the installation for them. Because, you know, setting up Kubernetes wasn't an easy task in the beginning. There weren't too many tools. So we are deploying Kubernetes uh, stack in the containers itself. So that was step number two. Then as a step number three, which is Rancher 2.0, we decided to focus on the Kubernetes. And Kubernetes is already provided on the cloud, like on GKE, for example, or Azure. So we let users to create the cluster. Like we provide a centralized management interface, allowing users to create a Kubernetes cluster anywhere he wants, either on GKE, using GKE, or Azure cloud, or on-premise. For on-premise installation, we use our own installer called RKey. This installer is very simple, and you can set up your Kubernetes anywhere you want, again, either on the DigitalOcean host or any other cloud providers, or even on-premise. Okay. And like you said, this portion of Rancher is what's doing the Kubernetes cluster management system, right? This is correct, because if you have multiple clouds, you would need some kind of a centralized management interface to manage them all. No matter where your cloud is, either on GKE or on-premise, you would like it to be presented the same way to the user. And then if you have multiple Kubernetes installations, you might want to centralize an access to its components. So you need some sort of an RBAC system where you can say, okay, this user can access this cluster and he can do things A and B in this cluster. And Rancher simplifies this for you. Mm-hmm. I see. And at Rancher, you work on various open source projects. Is that correct? Yeah, Rancher itself is completely open source. All the code is in, on the GitHub and external contributions are welcome and you can look at our code base. And uh, the majority of the components, in 2.0, the majority of components are written in the Golang, which is quite different from our, uh, our 1.0 version, where some components were written in Java and some were written in Go. Now it's almost everything is Go. So that's another interesting, it was interesting transition for me because I started as a Java developer. And I learned Go uh, on the after journey rancher. And in the beginning, I was shuffling between Java Go. Now it's pure Go. And it's kind of hard. Like if you need to fix something in 1.0 version, you have to go and look at Java. And it's like, oh my God, I don't remember anything. <laughs> oh no. And how was that transition like going from Java to Go? I haven't looked at Go very much. So I don't know what kind of language it is. It is very different, but at some point, if you're a developer for a long time, it doesn't really matter what language you program in. It's just fun to learn new things. Yeah. Yeah, I like Go. And at Rancher, I was looking up at the GitHub website, what kind of projects there were. 
saw you worked on the rancher load balancer is that correct that was one that x so oh okay. yeah i started okay. my first project at rancher was a load balancer so i did work on that and it's interesting because at the beginning you said when you were at citrix you worked also on the application load balancer yeah this is true yeah and in this one version 1.0 rancher what was the role of the kubernetes road balancer uh, the Kubernetes load balancer. So once the Kubernetes, once we uh, on the step two, when, when we started simplifying Kubernetes installers and offering Kubernetes clusters to our users, we were leveraging the Kubernetes ingress, ingress resource and we developed our own ingress controller for Kubernetes as a plugin for a Kubernetes, like external plugin for Kubernetes. So that was our custom part. Mm-hmm. And in Rancher 2.0, we also continue leveraging Kubernetes uh, ingress resource. And there you can, today we offer uh, Nginx ingress controller by default. It comes with our Kubernetes on-premise installation. But in the future, any ingress controllers that are, uh, that are going to be out there will be available to our users. So you can choose traffic, you can choose Nginx, you can choose whatever is there. And there is also a load balancer service, which is which is a bit different from, from the ingress. Usually load balancer service is the external load balancer provided by the cloud provider. So basically the Google offers its own load balancer and Amazon would offer ELB most likely. So basically when you choose, all right, so my cloud is my cloud provider is going to be AWS and I want to create a load balancer service and then Amazon itself will back it up by ELB. Mm-hmm. And when I was reading about this, I saw that the way it was implemented was using HA proxy. I'm not sure if I'm saying this correctly. But yeah, yeah, you're saying it correctly. HA proxy is a very popular and very stable software that's been uh, out there for a long time. Mm-hmm. And we're actually using it as a default load balancer in cloud stack even. And in Rancher, when we started 1.0, and we were thinking about what load balancer solution we're going to choose to back up the load balancing between the containers, we just went with HA proxy because it was very stable and it was very widely adopted. Mm-hmm. Is it open source? Uh, yes, it is. You can see the code out there. Okay. When would someone need to have a load balancer set up? So the most simple use case would be the web server. Let's say you have multiple instances on your web server and you want to balance traffic between multiple instances of the service So because you don't want all 1,000 requests to hit one server. You want it to be evenly distributed between multiple backends. So uh, that's where you would use, that's what you use load balancer. That is the most common use case. And there's like, you can choose different algorithms of how you want your traffic to be balanced. You can either choose round robin where every next request will go to the next server, or you can choose list connection algorithm where your request will go to the list loaded server. Or there are like multiple, multiple ways of doing things. Does a small company want to have it set up even if they're just in the process of getting users and things like that? Is that how it usually works? You set it up for the case when you start getting more traffic? I would set it up from the very beginning because it's pretty easy and it doesn't break anything. It doesn't hurt to have it. In addition to traffic distribution, it also does uh, other useful things like, for example, SSL offload. If you want to secure your servers, you have to have the certificate on them. And let's say you have 10 backend servers and without the load balancer, you have to place the certificate on every one of these servers. With a load balancer, you can kind of terminate the connection 
on the load balancer itself. So you place the certificate on the load balancer. The user connection comes as secure to the load balancer. That's where the certificate is being verified and stuff. And then the request goes to the backend server. And there is no need to have that certificate on the backend server. That's called SSL termination. And that's another use case for the load balancer. And uh, the third use case would be, let's say you want to you want to do the upgrade for your uh, for your service. So let's say you have a service A behind the load balancer, and your load balancer has some common DNS name like foo.com. So you hit foo.com, you go to A. But let's say you want to replace your A with B without disrupting the user traffic. So you just place the service B behind the load balancer, and then you can you know you can remove the service A and the request to foo that come from the user will just flow to service B and he won't notice the difference. So yes, I would suggest that the load balancer is probably the most useful piece for your application and I would recommend to have it even in the very beginning. I see. And what are some of the health checks that you recommend to have set up and for tracking and things like that? Yeah, the health check is another useful feature. So basically, you want to set up a health check on your service. So for example, like, okay, you say your service is healthy if it replies with okay on the request to this particular page. But then uh, setting up the health check kind of implies that somebody is going to handle the failed health checks by replacing your containers with the ones that goes unhealthy. So once it goes unhealthy, it's going to get replaced with a healthy one. And are these health checks normally set up like, you have a dashboard that you're looking at or alerts? Yeah, you can configure alerts for the failed health check. In the Kubernetes, for example, you can set up the liveness and readiness probe for your container, for your pods, for your applications. And then you will see in the events if your container went unhealthy and Kubernetes is going to replace it. And then what you can do, you can set up your own alert system that will monitor it for events like continue going unhealthy and, you know, to report it to the user. And Rancher has its own, like we have our own uh, alert component just for that purpose. Before we finish, I want to switch gears a little bit, talk about another sets of topics. For example, one thing that happens in this industry is some people want to be coding all the time on the free time on the weekends. They really like it. Other people think they have to do it in order to keep up with technology and develop more skills and not be left behind. What do you think about doing things that are unrelated to technology, for example, like painting or reading fiction books? I can relate to this question so much. <laughs> that used to be another intimidation point for me because you you know you read all the stories about people coding in their free time and it just makes you very anxious if you're you know I like coding. I code at work and uh, sometimes I code like after coming home. But I also have a family. I have kids and at some point I've realized it's like both parts of my life are very important. My job is important and my family is very important to me. And if I just give uh, programming 80% of my time, it means that other areas of my life are going to suffer. So I think you just balance, depending on the stage in your life, you just shift the balance a little bit. And you should not feel guilty about it because you still it's, your coding is still your full-time job and you, you still learn a lot even at work. Yeah. And yeah, speaking of hobbies, it's also very important because it also it kind of like it unloads your brain. It makes you shift focus to something else. And it 
interesting. Yeah, it can give you another perspective on that thing that you're trying to solve at work. Like, let's say you have a problem at work. If you continue thinking about it, it's just going to load your brain and the solution might not come. But if you go to the gym and you go for a run or you do painting, as you said, the solution can just float in your mind. And it's, it's something that continues surprising me. Yeah. And also these activities have a benefit on their own. For example, like you said, you go running while doing exercise, you're more healthy. You can be more alert when you are looking at problems, right? Yeah, this is right. And maintaining your health is another thing that it's better to start doing young. Along with the programming, you just have to take care of your body. One thing that has helped is that I see on Twitter, a lot of known people from technology started tweeting about this. Like, I spent time with my kids and my free time and things like that. Don't be ashamed of this. So I think the conversation is slowly starting to shift to the, it's okay. Don't feel guilty if you're painting something on a weekend. Yeah, I think actually, yeah, I've been watching this track. I think Silicon Valley is slowly changing. And uh, yeah, the things that you mentioned are slowly evolving. And if you think about family and kids, even if you look at the, the bigger companies and their maternity leave policies, you see that they're improving as well. It's like they're longer and uh, they encourage you know, women to take more time off, which is pretty good. Last question. I see you attend conferences and give talks in some of them. How do you recommend for someone to make the most out of attending a conference? So uh, I think the conferences is just as about like attending the talks as for uh, meeting new people is about meeting new people. I think that's an equally important part because the talks you can recap later on, but meeting the people is something that is like very essential. And what I do before the conferences, I just select the tracks that I would like to attend. And then I think about the questions that I can ask at the end of the talk, just to get more from the presenter. If you're shy to ask the question, like from the auditor, you can just approach the presenter after he or she is done with the presentation. And yes, that helps to recover it. And then, as you obviously cannot attend all the talks during the conference, I usually just watch them after coming back. And as I mentioned, I really, really enjoy meeting new people and asking about the projects they work on or how they adopt a certain technology. That's another thing that, yeah, I I find very useful. Mm -hmm. Have you ever thought of creating a podcast? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I think you'd be a good host based on what you just said. So, (laughs) Uh, Thank you. I've just started participating in the podcast as a guest, I think. (laughs) that's a good start yeah but I admire what you do I think it's awesome well thank you Alina and thank you for taking the time to come on the show it's been a pleasure talking to you thank you very much for getting me it was a pleasure talking to you